This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Here's a shipwreck tale that hasn't been heard in a long time. We're filling up the archive with ones that have gone missing. Today, the tale of the Kursk. The wind in the wild made a tattletail sound And a wave broke over the river And every man knew as the captain did too the witch of November come stealing Shipwreck Tales with John McChrystal This week's something part of the modern world And this is our first submariner story The infamous story of the Kursk in the year 2000 John McChrystal. Horrible story, really, and I remember it quite clearly as it unfolded. It has parallels with the whole horrible Pike River thing. Something bad's happened to these people, and you don't know whether they're still alive or not. And between you and them, there's not only the dangerous enterprise of getting to them, but there's also the bureaucracy that's capable of doing it, telling you why they're not doing anything about it. This was 2000, well after communism had faded away, but there was still that latent inertia from the Soviet era, it seemed, didn't it? It's very much saturated with that Cold War mentality, really. It was sort of a seminal moment in Russian history, I think, because they'd muddled along doing things pretty much the way they'd always done things. And this was unprecedented because it played out in front of the world's media and with the world putting intense pressure on them to accept assistance, as we'll come to see. The man in the hot seat was Vladimir Putin, who's still there, and he did what he does best. He sort of gathered around on a jet ski with his shirt off and that kind of thing while this crisis was unfolding. He later admitted that there probably wasn't much he could have changed by acting differently, but the optics were all wrong. Let's talk about this vessel. It's a massive concern, built at the very end of the Soviet era. She's what's known as an Antaeus class to the Russians, nuclear submarine. She is 154 metres long, so if you can picture two jumbo jets parked end-to-end, that's about how long she is. She's just round and blunt at either end with propellers sticking off the back end. That's about as technical as the description needs to get. She's named, of course, where the largest tank battle in recorded history occurred in 1943. Construction began on her in 1992 and she was launched in 1994. So she's post-Soviet era. But what's going on here really is the Russians commissioned and launched this thing because they wanted to retain that same kind of superpower status that the Soviet Union had enjoyed. The idea was that Russia would keep skin in that particular game by maintaining a fleet of these things. Problem is, they were broke. The submarines themselves were pretty expensive propositions to build. And then just to maintain all the infrastructure around them as well, even just loading torpedoes with dockside cranes, that kind of thing has to be maintained and it's an expensive business. The Russians were not flush for cash back there in the 90s, right through, in fact, to the 2000s when our story unfolds. However, she was a prestige vehicle and very, very well made when she was launched. She could deliver intercontinental ballistic missiles, nuclear-tipped missiles, I understand? She was packed to the gunnels with cruise missiles, and she could also fire an array of torpedoes. Torpedoes are not just the things that go bang in the way that they did in World War II. These two can now carry a nuclear warhead. She's armed to the teeth with scary, scary ordnance. And she was armed to the teeth when she met her fate? 
Yes, she was. She was out on exercises in the critical period. This exercise was scheduled. It's one of the regular exercises that these big navies seem to hold just to show off what they can do. And this one was meant to be a biggie just to show that the Russian Navy was still there and you probably needed to be a bit nervous about it. Let's talk about the humanity on board. 118 crew and the commander, Gennady Lyachin. Yeah, he was a pretty experienced guy. In fact, they had a very experienced crew, really, except in the torpedo room as it happened. But certainly those in charge of making the ship go and keeping her going and keeping her operating smoothly were all pretty good at what they did. They pretty much had enough gear and people aboard to keep the curse going properly, or so they thought. It came down to the torpedoes in the end and their maintenance. Tell us about these torpedoes and what makes them go and what makes them go bang. The torpedoes in question are a class of torpedo called the kit, which means whale, but they were nicknamed by those who handled them as the fat girl. They were enormous, these things. They're about the length of a bus, quite a long way around as well. They can carry a nuclear warhead or they can carry a conventional warhead. They go very fast and they can go a long way and they were greatly feared by both sides, both those who might have been on the receiving end and by those tasked with firing them. The reason those who were firing them were a bit nervous of them is because they had a peculiar kind of propulsion system. Needless to say, when you've got a conventional oil-burning motor going underwater, you either need to feed it air from the surface or you need to provide it with its own self-contained oxygen supply. You can do that in two ways. You can either give them a tank of compressed air or generate the oxygen chemically by using an oxidising agent. This particular type of torpedo used what's known as HTP, high test peroxide. Now hydrogen peroxide is familiar to most people under the brand name of Janola, where it occurs in roughly 5% concentration by volume. High test hydrogen peroxide is roughly 85 or even higher, and it's an incredibly corrosive chemical. The trouble with that is, pretty much anything it comes into contact with, it's going to start aggressively attacking, including whatever's storing it. So you've got a torpedo that's sitting around, and these torpedoes were apparently designed to last for 20 years, but it's been sitting around for roughly 10. It's meant to have a complete overhaul so that all those corroded pieces can be stripped out and new bits put in, and then they were supposed to have lasted 20 years. This one was likely to have been 15-odd years old, but bear in mind that a lot of this class of torpedo never even made their 10-year mark because they corroded so heavily they couldn't continue to be used. The trouble with the oxidizer once it starts leaking is as soon as it contacts one of a certain class of metals, that can include rusted iron, such as the corroded metal of which the torpedo is made, or any other bit of the submarine around it, this massive what's called exothermic reaction occurs. The hydrogen peroxide turns into water and oxygen and heat. Of course, that huge increase in pressure and heat is basically an explosion that can have the effect of blowing things up or it can just superheat other things. And in a torpedo room where you've got lots of high explosive lying around, that's not a good look. This has happened. Many other nations had experimented with HTP torpedoes. British sub that was carrying them blew up at the dock, the HMS Silas that was, in 1955. Two years later, an American sub went the same way. The Soviets had lost no fewer than five submarines, including one that was meant to be taking nuclear weapons to Cuba in 1962. Everyone knew that these things were a really bad idea, but what appealed to the Russians about them is hydrogen peroxide was cheap. Was the loss of life with the other incidents of a similar origin? 
Yeah, well, mostly because uh, the vessels at the time were at, at the dock, most of their crew weren't aboard. Yeah. So there was loss of life, but it wasn't enormous. Uh, no one really knows about the Russian ones because the, under the Soviet regime, of course, this kind of accident was kept very, very quiet. I suspect in the submariner world, though, they'd be walking on broken eggshells, wouldn't they? Because they, it, they would know about the danger. They didn't like handling these things. They even had a word for what happens when one of these things starts to heat up because the oxidising agent is leaking. The Russian word translates as enraged. You've got this great big hulking torpedo aboard and there's a danger that it's just going to suddenly heat up and maybe even burst, and they call that enraged. What would they do with it? I I thought it would just go bang straight away. Yeah, you've had maybe a couple of minutes. Uh, What you would do is you'd load it and fire it as quickly as possible. So Uh. just get it out into the ocean and it can do what it likes out there. Okay. Today, the story of the Kursk tragedy in the Barents Sea, 118 on board in the year 2000. We'll be back very shortly with John McChrystal. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Today, the story of the Kursk in the year 2000. Familiar to many of you, I'm sure. All hands died. The final voyage, August the 10th, 2000. Yeah, that's right. And they were behind schedule largely because they'd had a lot of difficulty loading their torpedoes, especially the Type 67 that caused all the problems and, in fact, the tragedy itself. They were lifting it up with the rusty old Ukrainian cranes that they were using and that they no longer had Ukrainian servicing because Russia, as a source of national pride, didn't want to engage foreign countries to do that kind of work. So these things hadn't been maintained for years, and as a consequence of that, they dropped this torpedo as they were putting it aboard. They unloaded it and checked it for damage. Couldn't find anything that would tell them that this thing was unsafe and shouldn't go, so they duly loaded it and attached all its monitoring devices and probably crossed their fingers, I I expect. The crew, meanwhile, had assembled. There was a man aboard by the name of Rashid Ayapova. He came from way down the south. On their way up there, his wife, Kalima, had a dream in which a whole lot of women wearing black came to her and asked her why she had married a dead man. That was a bad enough omen. But when they were passing through St. Petersburg, they went to the famous fountain there and her husband gave her a couple of coins and said, if we toss these coins into the fountain, the legend is that we'll always return. So she biffed both coins into the fountain and then it was only after she'd left that it occurred to her that she had thrown both coins in and her husband hadn't thrown one in. And this became tremendously significant to her later. Dockside, there was another spooky lucky escape story. There was a man named Dmitry Kolesnikov aboard. His 27th birthday happened just before this vessel was about to sail. So his brother came aboard and banged on the hatch and asked for him. He came up topside and they were chatting and probably drinking vodka. When the commander came up and asked why the hell Dmitry wasn't at his post, Dmitry said, I was just sharing a birthday drink with my brother, whereupon the commander said, oh... I've heard about your brother. He's also a submariner. Let's get him aboard for this exercise. So they completed the paperwork and that went off. But luckily it didn't come back in time. So Sasha Kolesnikov was not aboard when the Kursk sailed. She sailed late, but she's fast. She could go 32 knots underwater. So she made full speed. And so by around 2 o'clock she was where she was supposed to be, which was with a large fleet of other vessels. 
At 0900 uh, on August the 11th, she was on station and at 12 o'clock all the fun began. They were supposed to fire two cruise missiles from the Kursk at a derelict ship which was anchored 200 nautical miles away. One of them flew to its target and destroyed it. The second one soared out of the silo, then fell back into the sea, never to be seen again. So that was a bit of a failure. At 15.50, there was a change in the pressure noted in this HTP torpedo. So in other words, the oxidising agent was now leaking. It was beginning to undergo that exothermic reaction that we've talked about. They had an enraged fat girl, as they say in Russian. Yes, the fat girl was in danger of becoming enraged. She was slightly miffed, it was noted. That caused concern. However, they were due to fire this torpedo very shortly. So I think the idea was, well, let's just bung it in the torpedo tube and we'll get rid of it very shortly. On August the 12th, the Kursk performed a simulated missile attack. So that is battleships with computers. They pretended to attack the Peter the Great, and that was a great success. Then she was supposed to attack Peter the Great with torpedoes, including the fat girl. So she came to periscope depth, she hoisted her radar targeting apparatus, and all was in readiness. They bunged the slightly miffed fat girl into the torpedo tube and prepared to fire it. At 11.12 on that morning, August 12, one lot of crewmen went off for lunch and another lot took their place. So a lot of crewmen were now in compartment two where the mess hall was, and that's directly adjacent to the forward compartment where the torpedo room is. Apparently the watertight door was open between those two because that improved ventilation and made it cooler and much more pleasant when you were eating your lunch. Pays to pause, I think, just to picture what life must be like aboard one of these. They're built for speed, not comfort. There are pipes and wires and things everywhere. People can squeeze through gaps, but it's just not easy to get around them either. There's just nothing there that doesn't serve the function of getting a vessel underwater and back to the surface and firing stuff. You're part of a machine, I think. You can be a vast distance underwater in one of them, hoping that everything that the dockside engineers have been working on has been well maintained and everything works properly. And because of the strategies of war, no phoning home, no contact. That's right. Apparently even moving around the ship, they wear soft-soled slippers. If you're listening on a hydrophone a couple of hundred miles away, you can't hear sort of kaplunk, 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 kaplunk as someone's feet go along the deck. They keep their voices down to a whisper because, again, voices can be heard up to 100 miles away on a sophisticated hydrophone. So everyone's sort of sneaking around on this vessel, which is itself sneaking around. At 11.29, 5,000 kilometres away, at a station that's been set up to monitor Soviet nuclear tests, there's suddenly a 2.2 magnitude earthquake or tremor felt. This is a bit weird because you don't get earthquakes in the Barents Sea. If there'd been anyone around watching that particular seismograph at that point, this would have seemed a little odd. What this was, was an explosion, the equivalent of 220 pounds of TNT occurring, which is roughly equivalent to a fat girl getting enraged and blowing a top. The torpedo didn't have a warhead, but there was enough fuel and oxidising agent there to create a very powerful explosion. There are two dangerous bits on this kind of torpedo. There's the warhead and there's the propellant, and it's the propellant that's just exploded aboard the Kursk. It's been in torpedo tube number four down on the port side and it's completely demolished the bow of the Kursk. Water is beginning to come in and there's nothing to stop either the explosion or the water getting into compartment two where not only are a whole bunch of people having their lunch but the submarine's command post also happens to be located. Many would have been killed instantly, I take it. 
probably a good two-thirds of the submarine's crew, because a lot of people are involved in the command post operations, would have been killed outright. And there's some comfort in that, given what happens next. Yeah. I'm wondering how we know so much about the lead-up to this, if stealth was observed, or are they sharing this information with the other people in the fleet? Very little of the information has been shared with the fleet. Some of the classified stuff relating to what's been happening with weapons testing and what have you was shared with the fleet and that brought out an, an, an inquiry at a later date, which is quite remarkable even for post-Soviet Russia. But a lot of it is also just the superb work the author whose book I consulted, uh, his name is Ramsey Flynn, and the book is called Cry from the Deep. He had interviewed people who operated the sister ship to the Kursk and others who had been aboard the Kursk and so basically knew how they did stuff. And the evidence we do have meshes with that, so he can be confident. That's right. Okay. It's worth noting that the Kursk had an escape pod. Her conning tower was capable of being detached and that could carry 115 people. I don't know how they would have decided which three got left out, but that was capable of carrying 115 people back to the surface safely. She also had escape hatches, and she had three buoys, which, in the event of a sudden unprogrammed crash dive, were programmed to detach and float at the end of a tether to the surface. And the tether would serve two purposes. One, it would mark the location of the wreck, And secondly, it would provide a communication means because these were wired down to the submarine and you could hook up to them and you could speak to anyone who might still be alive in the submarine. Trouble was, these things had a habit of rattling around, apparently, and so the Soviets and then the Russians as well used to just weld them to the hull of the vessel so they didn't rattle no more. But that also meant they were incapable of deploying. There's no evidence that any of these three boys deployed as they should have. What about the conning tower then? The conning tower must have been stuck, and presumably when they eventually raised the wreck of the Kursk, they discovered that it couldn't have been deployed. There does appear to have been a big queue of people trying to get into it. Oh. So those who did survive this initial explosion were racing to get aboard the escape pod. What's happening, of course, the command post is out of action, the bow is flooded, this alters the trim of the vessel, and she begins to sink. How deep is she when this happens? At periscope depth, so she's only a matter of about 10 metres below the surface. Immediately upon her forward compartment being flooded, she begins inclining downward. There's no one left in the command post who can correct this, so she starts heading down. And 76 seconds later, they estimate, she hit the seabed 115 metres down at an angle of 26 degrees. So she basically went into a shallow dive. She augured into the bottom of the Barents Sea, which is very silty, to apparently 30 metres and then bounced off the granite beneath that, and then she came to rest on a more or less even keel. So she was on the optimum attitude if you wanted to attempt a submarine rescue. We'll carry on with the story of the Kursk very shortly, and the horrific thought that some people survived for some time, or did they? And of course, the now infamous inertia that saw people sit on their hands while there may have been an opportunity for rescue. The Kursk this week with John McChrystal. Tune in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Our shipwreck tale this week, a submariner's tale, the Kursk, named after one of the most famous battles in World War II. She's sunk to the sea floor. Very shortly after she settles on the seabed, two minutes, 15 seconds after the first blast, there's another blast, and 5,000 kilometres away, this is registered as 3.5 on the Richter scale. That's a big bang. 
probably bigger than any conventional weapon that was dropped in World War II. Compartments 2, 3 and 4 were pretty much obliterated by this. So that's half the submarine just hollowed out by this massive explosion, which fires debris and superheated material backwards through the submarine, through these massive bulkheads that are meant to keep the sea out. That probably accounts, well it does, in fact account for all but 23 of the people aboard the Kursk. There are three other subs in the vicinity which are submerged and playing their own war games. Two of them feel this blast through the water and they actually think that they've collided with something. So sudden and violent is it. Even on the surface, the Peter the Great, the the big capital warship up there, they feel something strange rattling through the hull of their vessel. At first, no one's too concerned about all of this, but calm sort of begins to wear off as time goes by. Mm. Meanwhile, down below there are still people alive. There are two ranking officers, Dmitry Kolesnikov, who we mentioned, and Rashi Ayapov, whom we also mentioned. They're in separate compartments, but they independently make the decision that compartment nine is the best place to be in the situation they're in. So they get all hands from compartments six, seven, eight, and direct them to compartment nine. Best thing about compartment nine, it's not a homely space. It's mostly storage. There's all kinds of junk, rusting junk in there. It's got sleeping accommodations for only three people. It's not intended to be occupied. However, it does have an escape tunnel. It's the only accessible compartment they have with an escape tunnel. It's also equipped with oxygen masks, with oxygen regeneration cartridges. There are emergency escape suits. There's food and there's a whole lot of bottled water. There's the stuff that you need to keep yourself alive. And there's also the means for performing a last-minute desperation self-rescue namely opening the sub to the outside and swimming for the surface. Oh, really? From that depth? From that depth. It's anticipated you probably wouldn't survive that anyway. You'd make the surface as long as you followed procedures, but you'd almost certainly then suffer decompression sickness. This is 115 metres. The maximum depth for recreational diving is around 45 metres. Technical divers go much, much deeper than that, and they go at least as deep as the Kursk. But for these guys, they don't have technical equipment, and they would be sitting ducks for decompression sickness. So that's a last resort. Probably when they were busy sorting through their kit and getting ready for that eventuality should they need it and strapping on all this equipment, they discovered that the brass buckles from the oxygen masks have been stolen, presumably by people who have sold them for scrap. The oxygen masks for most of them are useless. Oh, dear idea. What was their situation? Are they knee-deep in water? Is it completely dark? Dimly lit at first because there's battery emergency power running through what's left of the vessel. The trouble is the compartment they're in runs directly above the propeller shafts and the propeller shafts are expected to leak. They've got what's known as the stern gland, which is the bearing through which a propeller shaft passes. Pretty much impossible to make that both watertight and yet effective as a bearing that has a piece of steel spinning in it very quickly because if it was too tight it would just heat up. So the idea is that it does admit a little bit of seawater to act as a lubricant and a coolant, and then that gets pumped out again. Problem is, when this class of submarine is at rest, they made water through the stern glands very rapidly. Of course, if the bilge pumps weren't working, then that keeps coming in. They're in this great big hollow compartment. It's dimly lit. There are 23 of them there, most of them injured, probably not an intact eardrum amongst them, I shouldn't have thought. Mm. If they can hear anything, what they can hear is the sound of water entering the submarine. People listening may be wondering, how on earth do we know this? All hands were lost. This is one of the heart-rending things about this story. 
because it was thought that and almost hoped that everyone died instantly. But Dimitri wrote notes. That's right. Dimitri, or Dima, as his nickname was, Kolesnikov, wrote a note at 1.15 in the afternoon, two hours from the explosion, and just noted that all personnel from compartments 6, 7 and 8 were in compartment 9. They were 23 in number, and he listed their names. A couple of hours later, he wrote again, It is dark to write here, but I'll try by feel. It looks like there are no chances, 10 to 20%. Let's hope at least that someone reads this. Here are the list of compartments submariners. Some of them are in the ninth and will try to escape. Greetings to all, don't despair. And then there were some personal messages for his wife and his parents. He listed the names of everyone aboard the sub and wrote marks at either a tick or a cross to indicate whether they'd survived this far. That's four hours after the explosion. That's the very least time that anyone survived because there were no further notes made after that time, but that note was made at that time, so we can be sure there were people alive for at least four hours after the second explosion. That second explosion that made a Richter scale thing move, what caused that? I mean, that what can't have just been the hydrogen peroxide going fizz. Was that a the warheads themselves going off? Yeah, what happened is uh, this is a huge explosion in the torpedo room, and the torpedo room is full of torpedoes, and a lot of them are carrying warheads, all conventional so far as anyone knows. All the superheated material flying around, some of it lodges in the warheads. The temperature in the whole torpedo room rose to an estimated 5,000 degrees, and that was enough to set off at least four of the other combat torpedoes simultaneously, which accounts for the Big Bang. The retrieval of the vessel herself will fill in the story further. But let's go to onshore, this paralysis that ensued and this kind of Cold War ethic of everything's fine. The story, it's horrible enough, but this is when it gets really horrible because good old human stupidity comes in here. The Cold War's got a whole lot to answer for, of course. You only need to look at North Korea to see that. But this is just another example of how we haven't lived down or got away from the stupidity that was the Cold War. The Kursk failed to meet her scheduled communication status report, and so the commander of the exercises, uh, Admiral Popov, is sitting there thinking, do I report that maybe our best submarine has a problem, or do I just hang tight and hope for the best? Needless to say, Russian commanders who brought bad news had a long history of not going too well in the rest of their career. He had that in his mind. But he also had in his mind that this is a big, important vessel that is not answering any telephone calls at this stage. He begins a sort of a search at about 6.14 in the afternoon, about seven hours after the first explosion. At this stage, they don't know about either explosion, really. They haven't connected the non-communicative status of the Kursk with the strange sensation they felt through the hull of the Peter the Great a little earlier on. They initially pick up a weak signal using the Kursk's call sign, That's picked up by a shore station, and that's initially taken as evidence that she's surfaced somewhere, and she's just having trouble with her radios, which isn't beyond the realms of credibility at all. Mm. But here we go. Other people know that something terrible has happened to the Kursk. NATO is closely monitoring these exercises. Partly that's what it's for. The Russians put them on so that NATO will sit and watch. And sitting and watching, there were a couple of American submarines. The USS Memphis felt the blast and knew it was something way out of the ordinary. They knew that it roughly corresponded with weapons practice that was going on, so it could have been just an explosion related to weapons practice. But they begin to get this sense that something is amiss with one of the Russian submarines. 
this information is conveyed back to the Pentagon, and then there's suddenly a dilemma set up there. If we make an unsolicited offer of assistance to the Russians, they'll know just how closely we've been monitoring their operations. So we'd better sit tight and wait till they come to us, or at least make an announcement that there's a problem. Meanwhile, of course, the Russians don't know. The Norwegians have also had a wild guess because they've got a listening station that's the seismograph I mentioned, and they've noticed that there's a very strange signal on that, two strange signals. They begin to think that there's been a disaster with a Russian submarine. Ten hours after the blast, another of the Russian submarines, the Karelian, reported that they felt an enormous explosion through the water. Suddenly, everyone begins to connect that with the Kursk. They begin a search along the line uh, that that underwater sound signal was detected. At 23.30, or 12 hours after the explosion, the second explosion, an alarm for the Kursk is formally raised. So 12 hours went by before anyone really thought there was anything genuinely amiss. So we'll cut to the chase a little bit. There was a lot of delay in actually organising a search and finding the Kursk, but the Russians eventually managed to do that. But meanwhile, it was becoming common knowledge amongst NATO countries that a Russian submarine had suffered a major mishap and was missing. So they looked at what they had. The Americans had excellent sub-rescue capacity. Probably the best sub-rescue capacity of all was in the United Kingdom, where they had a specialist vessel called the LR-15. That was quite close by. It was on its way to the Mediterranean for its own exercise, and it would have been easy enough to divert. But there's still this problem. They can't go offering anything to the Russians until the Russians admit there's a problem. All they can do is sit around and wait. Credit has to be given to the British commander who could give the go-ahead to the LR-15. He didn't wait around. He began making the necessary preparations to divert the LR-15 to the Barents Sea, just confidently expecting that the Russians would eventually say, well, we need help here. Shipwreck tale this week, the Kursk. All hands lost, and yet we can infer a lot about their last moments when we return that heartbreaking report of tapping from the submarine at depth. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Shipwreck Tales this week. The story of the Kursk, that massive nuclear submarine that went to the bottom and all hands were lost. Yet, John, it's amazing how much we do know about it now. Yeah, they've reconstructed most of what happened aboard, mostly because of the evidence that was recovered when the vessel herself was raised. For me, the most awful part of this whole story comes when they locate the Kursk and the Peter the Great makes her way to the scene and sort of anchors in the vicinity and through their hydrophones they can hear a rhythmic tapping. They can also hear the sound of grinding metal, as you'd expect with a, with a wreck on the seabed, cooling and working with currents and what have you, but there's this rhythmic tapping, and immediately opinion is divided. Is this the sound of machinery, or is this the sound of human beings tapping on the hull of their vessel to indicate they're alive? Some who are listening to it reckon that they can decode an SOS, And they also think that they can use the Kursk's signal book and decode a signal for the water is rising. Either way, that's what was happening. There were people alive aboard that vessel. 
and the water was rising. It's not at all unreasonable to expect those people to have been making tapping noises to try to indicate their plight to the surface. That was their only means of communication. There were valiant attempts to go down and save whomsoever may have been alive, as unlikely as it was. Yeah, the Russians were determined to do this themselves. They had some antiquated sub-rescue capacity. They'd actually scrapped their best vessel, but they still had a few vessels that were capable of doing it. They're basically submersibles. They're submarines designed to work underwater. They were also designed to seal onto the hulls of their combat submarines. So they could locate the hatch, they could place a great big suction device over the top of the hatch, and then open the hatch, and then there'd be a safe method of conveying people from one sub to the other. I think I counted five attempts at applying a proper seal to the hull of the Kursk. They found her, they got there, they used their equipment. One of their subs actually managed to achieve a seal once or twice, but they couldn't get the hatch open. Word is beginning to filter out into the Russian homeland what has happened underwater here. The Russians immediately start claiming that the Kursk must have collided with a NATO vessel. It's happened before in this very bit of water, and they are adamant that the only way the Kursk can have gotten to these present difficulties is if she collided with a submarine on spy duty. They notice with their satellites an American submarine heading for a base in Norway, and they describe that as limping towards that base as though it's been damaged. So they're basically alleging that the Americans have collided with the Kursk and then absconded from the scene. That, of course, enrages the Americans. And when they finally do make an offer of assistance to the Russians in the rescue, they make it conditional on the fact that any allegation the Kursk was involved in the collision is rescinded. So just more of the sabre-rattling nonsense going on as well. It's still the Cold War as far as procedure goes, isn't it? That's right. Vladimir Putin is riding his jet ski on the Black Sea, looking bronzed and relaxed. He's been told about this, but he decides that there's nothing he can do, so he'll stay put. Meanwhile, though, the world and the Russian media have descended on the little town of Vidyavyo, which is the home port of the Kursk. This is an unprecedented event in Soviet, definitely, but even Russian history. The media are there, and they're asking awkward questions. Putin is saying that it's too late for the Kursk survivors, and by the time he's made this pronouncement, it's probably right. This is on Tuesday, August 15, and the last tapping noises were heard from the Kursk on Monday, August the 14th at 1100 hours. It takes a long time, but eventually the Russians agree to allow Norwegian divers and the UK's sub-rescue vessel, the LR-15, onto the site. They make all haste to get there. But even then, there are foolish conditions placed, and there's this long negotiation has to be gone through on exactly what divers and submarines are allowed to look at when they're at the Kursk Mm. before they'll be allowed down there. One of the submersibles gets down there and has trouble nonetheless, even though, you know, great equipment, it's tough down there. The Russians are still doing their damnedest to effect a rescue themselves or a recovery themselves. So they get a submersible down there. It's their best one. It's called the Bester, in fact, and actually establishes a seal on the escape hatch. But then its battery goes flat, so they have to go back to the surface. And that's that. They can't make another attempt. Norwegian divers are sent down. By the time all the foolish negotiations have been gone through, this is six days after the second explosion. The Russians firmly believe that everyone aboard is dead and that a collision is to blame. Norwegian divers go down, they inspect the hatch and decide that there's actually nothing wrong with it. And so they conduct a test to see whether water will enter the escape hatch. If you picture this escape hatch, there's an outer hatch and there's an inner hatch. Needless to say, you've got to equalise the water pressure before you can open either hatch. 
So what happens is you climb into the tunnel, you close the inner hatch, you flood the chamber that you're in, you open the outer hatch and then you can swim out. If they can prove that the inner hatch is still full of air, there's a good chance that that compartment 9 beneath it is also full of air and that no one has attempted to get out of the sub. They perform a test and establish that it's flooded. Now this either means that there's been an attempt to escape from the sub from within, but the escape hatch on the outside didn't open, or that it's just flooded. Once they get the diving bell on site and they can do some significant work, they manage to open the exterior hatch and they decide, since there's very little chance there's anyone going to be left alive, they'll blow the inner hatch. They explode it and black bubbles are seen to rise out of the Kursk. So black gas is coming out, which means smoke at the very least and probably carbon dioxide, monoxide and various other poisonous gases. There's no chance anyone's going to be left alive in there. On shore, the classic Soviet bureaucracy that is still latent, one of the officers has to be bribed in order to name the crew. 18,000 rubles, one of the newspapers announces, is what it took to get one of the top naval brass to actually release the names of those who were aboard. It was nearly five days for anyone who had someone in the submarine service who might have been aboard the Kursk to work out whether their loved one was aboard or not. Needless to say, that would have been a horrifying moment for those who suddenly knew that their loved ones were, and an immense relief after five days of agony for those who just thought they were. There was the famous footage the mothers, the wives receiving the news and the anger that they expressed should never have happened in the Cold War. The public attitude was different to the military, wasn't it? That's right. There were TV cameras there, and one of the wives was berating the naval official who was bringing the news. You bastard, she that, says. That's right. <laughs> And then someone moves in and administers a syringe of something to her and she collapses on the floor. Mm. Meanwhile, another one of the mothers is busy trying to throttle another Navy official before she's dragged off. The optics weren't good, as Putin had occasion to reflect later on. They've managed to breach the shell of, of the Kursk. I mean, what can they do in this situation without salvaging the vessel? What can they find out? Well, divers can go in and explore her. They train by going to her sister ship and basically going through it with a blindfold so that they can find their way around in the dark, which they'll have to do. So they go aboard the Kursk and they very quickly recover four bodies. And one of them is Dmitry Kolesnikov's. All four bodies are badly burned, but heartbreakingly they're half burned. They're burned from the waist up. And the only conclusion that you can draw from that is that these men were alive as fire swept through a semi-flooded compartment. This begins to make the official story that they'd all been killed within seconds of the blast untenable, and they were also clad in emergency suits, so that means they had time to get them on. One to get to them, two to break them out, three to get them on. So that means many minutes at least. Then, of course, they find a note in Kolesnikov's pocket, and that makes it plain that they survived for at least four hours, and there's no reason to believe they would have pegged out immediately after that last entry was made. A number of oxygen regeneration cartridges have been used, which indicates they were keeping themselves alive down there. 15 out of the 85 bottles of water have been used, so they were hydrating themselves as well. <sighs> the awful bit is they work out what's gone on down there in compartment 9. These poor 23 buggers down there we're using a thing called potassium superoxide. It's a plate with a chemical on it which absorbs CO2 and generates oxygen. 
So it absorbs carbon dioxide that we breathe out and generates oxygen that we breathe in. You take this stuff out of the packet and normally you'd put it in a little bracket where it would do its thing. Someone dropped one. The problem is potassium superoxide, when dropped in water, explodes. Someone's dropped one in the water and it's created this massive flash fire. Some have had time to put oxygen masks on and go underwater. They've survived the fire. Others died in it. Those who survived did so because they had an oxygen mask on. The oxygen masks and their attached tanks were designed to last a few minutes to get people from the bottom of the sea to the surface in emergency self-rescue. They're not going to keep them alive for any longer than those few minutes. Because the oxygen was all used up by the flash fire. Exactly right. The fire burned itself out pretty much immediately, but took all the oxygen with it. So these guys who survived that fire have got a couple of minutes left. We know that at least one of them survived because he seems to have removed a note written by one of them to his wife from the man's body and then put it in his own top pocket. And he was found with it, with an oxygen mask on and dead and unaffected by fire. So we have a very detailed, ghastly picture of the last moments of those 23 men. Incredibly, this massive submarine was brought to the surface, at least part of it, in the end, wasn't it? Yeah, Putin made it a point of honour that he was going to raise this thing. If he was successful, it was going to be the biggest thing ever lifted off the seabed. But they managed it. They put an oil rig over the top of it, which supported the divers. They cut holes in it and threaded chains through it. They cut off the nose in case there were any unexploded torpedoes in there. And of course, that provoked a storm of controversy because those who believed the Kursk had collided with something cried cover-up, and those who believed that a torpedo had caused it cried cover-up. So the authorities were damned if they did and damned if they didn't. Mm. They winched her off the seabed, kept her underwater all the way into a dry dock, and then after having stabilised everything, they drained the dry dock and there she was. There was the Kursk. Anything more to be learnt because of that? Yeah, they were able to study the interior of Compartment 9 and they were able to confirm the theory of the fire and also count the number of oxygen regeneration things to give a figure of between four and eight hours of survival after the blast, perhaps far longer, depending how many people survived. They recovered all but three bodies, which I find just remarkable, given the violence of the death of this vessel, the depth she was, and just the sheer difficulty of raising it, and the fact that months had passed by the time they dragged her up. There's nothing more spooky than those notes that are written from those people that are almost certain that they're going to die. How sad, how bloody sad. And one of those guys may have been the person knock, knock, knocking on the hull of the ship and might have been the one that was heard. That's right, that's right. John McChrystal, thank you very, very much. This week, the story of the Kursk. Thanks, Ray. land listenership this evening and a special thank you if you're listening to it downloaded on the podcast
the shipwreck archives will shortly be completely full. Uh, there are some that have been missed out, so we're playing a few, and Grant Smithies is having an extended vacation. I think he's enjoying it. Uh, we'll be back with more albums from the class of 1978 um, in a few weeks' time once we've filled up the Shipwreck Tales archive. The Shipwreck archive is available on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage along with the Outsiders archive. I had a little cry when Jared Hindmarsh was regaling the story of James McKenzie. Okay, he was an outlaw. But it was one man and his dog. The man who gave his name to the Mackenzie country. And you just had to imagine that one man and his dog, it must have been a hell of a bond. He ended up in court for sheep rustling and was separated from his dog probably for the first time in years since he ever got it. Because he was rather an outdoorsy sort of person, to say the least. He was in court in handcuffs, in the dock. And then the judge said, bring in the dog. Oh dear, oh dear. Because he wasn't talking, was Mackenzie. He wasn't talking. But the judge thought he could break him. If he brought in his border collie. Here's how the story went uh, with Jared Hindmarsh. You'll hear the full story, of course, tomorrow night from 11. He called out, bring in the dog. I saw Mackenzie start and start gnawing his fingers a moment as the crowd stared at the slim, timid little black beast that had outwitted grey old shepherds. The dog went into a frenzy when it got led into the court and saw his master. And in another minute, the slim, sad-eyed thing was scratching and whining at the woodwork, trying to get to Jock. And Jock, the dog's eyes have made a baby of him, six-footer that he was. The tears began running down and lost themselves in his red beard as he said over and over, Hey lassie, poor lassie, they got you too. Leave the dog to me, she was mine. She was doing no harm to nobody and she was a good friend to me that has no other. Leave me the poor beastie. I'll make your roads, I'll break your stone, I'll call myself thief, but let her stay. Let me have her. No, oh, the story of James McKenzie tomorrow night after 11 o'clock. Okay, thank you all. New sport and weather at midnight, the top of the hour, and the number to call for overnight talkback, 0800 844 747. 0800 844 Oh, I might as well tell you some, one other thing that's happening tomorrow night. There's this gorgeous book about Polynesian voyaging. It's the best I've seen on the subject. But the funny thing, the author doesn't want to do an interview. This doesn't happen often. It's happened to me once before when there's been a cracking book uh, and the interviewer said, no, I'm too shy. Isn't that lovely? So we found an expert on Polynesian voyaging. And that's Lisa Matasu-Smith, and she's reviewing the book. She likes it a lot. And we talk about this incredible feat of humanity. When you slice it up, when you analyse it, just think of the distances. It's bizarre. Okay, it's midnight. Time for me to dash out. I'll be back tomorrow from 8pm.